Hello all, this is Artie Kulik. Welcome to First Watch Rewatch, where we go to the thrift store of pop culture and bring you the, uh, was it, the, the leisure suits of the 70s that are so stylish today. Speaking mm-hmm. of stylish. So I've got Ty here, and you actually just watched this movie yesterday, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Yeah, I want to tell everybody right <laughs> off the top, I love this movie. I thought it was great. It's not a good movie, and I have no idea what it's about. Obviously, people that are listening to this know Buckaroo Banzai is a much more famous movie now than it was when it came out. I do remember very vividly a friend of mine, Chris, and this was like one of his favorite movies. And so when we were kids, we used to watch it all the time. So I am incredibly familiar with this movie, but I'm surprised by how many people have never seen it. You've never seen it. My wife's never seen it. I I'd never heard of it until you told me. About oh, yeah. And then when I decided about a year ago to get back into like physical media and go find Blu-rays of some of my favorite movies, not only is this close to impossible to find, I mean, you can find on eBay, but it's really expensive. Sure, there, that makes sense. I ended up getting a non-high definition, a regular DVD at a half-price books over here in Ohio, which I, I'm going to discuss because it has some special features that are important. But overall, Ty, I, before I tell you the story of this movie, what do you think this movie was about? <laughs> That's interesting. I took I, you know, a peek behind the curtain. I don't take a lot of notes for the other podcasts that we do. I do sometimes, but this one... I was like, all right, I need to focus on this. I'm going to take it. I took a plethora of notes. I opened up my notes app on my phone and I just have like a page of notes on there. But there are more than one time where I said, I still don't know what this movie is about or what is this movie about? So if I'm trying to figure that out, Buckaroo Banzai is like the coolest person in the world. He's a doctor, a surgeon. (laughs) He fronts a band that's one of the (laughs) biggest bands in the world. He has a direct line to the president. He gives press conferences, which I'm sure we'll get to, but that press conference was incredibly small for what he had discovered. He's everything. He's an inventor. He's everything. And he has to help save planet Earth from aliens who I feel like, I don't know which movie came out first, either this one or They Live, but one ripped off the other one because the aliens seem the same way and the way he starts to find them is the same way. But essentially, to me, this movie is an allegory of 1980s US versus Russia. That's kind of what I got out of this movie, because they made a lot of references to the Kremlin or how we need to start. I mean, the president in this movie is in some weird contraption that looked like an iron Mm -hmm. lung, but I guess he has a back problem. (laughs) And when he's getting, you know, specialized documents from the people who work for him, it's all about we need to go to war with Russia. This is during the Cold War, but they're clearly sending these people to stop us. So my overall critique of this movie is it's a quote-unquote superhero movie but the main story is it's an allegory between the tensions between russia and u.s in the 80s ty let's first talk about just the cast alone in this movie but hold on oh. what do you think this movie is about that's what i want to because you've seen it oh i've seen it I... oh i've seen it multiple <laughs> times and i'll get to that as i break down the movie as we go through the plot and everything And then at the end, I was able to find a Siskel and Ebert review of it. And they said a lot of the same things you said. One liked it or they both liked it. One gave it a thumbs down, though. One gave it a thumbs up. But they basically for the same reasons. But I'm going to read off just kind of the main cast of this movie. All right. There's I couldn't believe it when it opened. Like, yeah, they were putting on there. This is uh, Peter Weller, one of his first big movie roles. He'd been in a couple of smaller ones. He'd go on to do RoboCop after this. There's Ellen Barkin, who, again, was a newer actress at the time. And when Such I, a weird role for her. Oh, in this yeah. Movie too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Much more serious actress overall. Mm-hmm. John Lithgow in a movie that to this day, he'll talk about how much fun he had with it. And I'll talk about him <laughs> creating this character. First two notes I have for him is that Lithgow with hair. Also, his teeth are really messy. Yes, yes. Uh, Jeff Goldblum in a yeah. cowboy outfit with chaps. Another one of my notes. Why is he in a cowboy outfit? <laughs> yeah. never referenced No, no. And I'm going to go through all that. <laughs> Christopher Lloyd. Uh, mm-hmm. Clancy as, Brown. As big booty. Yes. Uh, Clancy <laughs> Brown, who just showed up in Ahsoka. There's yep. uh, Robert Ito. Vincent Chevalier. I, I think that's how you say it. The weird-looking yeah. dude who was with uh, Christopher Lloyd. He was the oh, bad yeah, guy yeah. in Death to Smoochie. Uh-huh. Plus, yeah, he's better off. Stuff. Yeah, he's in Better Off Dad. He died uh-huh. of cancer. Yeah, I think he was only in his 50s. But Dan Hedaya, isn't it? 
Jonathan Banks in one of his first oh. movies ever, Mike Emmentrout. Or I can if never... you didn't know he was in it, you would totally miss him. Too. Oh, yeah, because he is skinny and <laughs> has a whole lot of hair. And Lithgow <laughs> murders him. Yes. He chokes him and murders him in the movie in an insane asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk about how this movie was made, all right? So W.D. Richter, who is really, really known. I mean, he's had a big, long career and everything like that, who directed this, but he's mostly known as a writer. And after this, he actually goes on to write Big Trouble in Little China. Is, that movie's uh, right. Yeah, another big, big movie he's really known for. But it's kind of these two. He went to Dartmouth College, and he read this book from this guy named Earl MacRouch, who he, who'd also gone to Dartmouth. And he's like, oh, I really like this book. And he, uh, W.D. Richter was working in Hollywood. He'd had some big things under his belt. And he told this guy that he never met, saying, hey, if you ever want to come to Hollywood, you can stay with me. So... That's what Rauch did. He went to Hollywood and he told him about how he had this idea of this character who, again, had all these different things he was doing and he was going to be fighting against all these people called Buckaroo Bandy. Richter was like, yeah, it's, it's a cool story. I don't like that name, though. And he convinced him to change it to Bonsai, Buckaroo Bonsai. And he started to write. So Rauch, he said, you know, develop this movie. They met with a few people, famously MGM. And they're like, yeah, we're interested in this movie. So he, uh, Rauch would say he'd get like 50 pages into a script, but he couldn't figure out how to end it. And his first script was called uh, Get the Jet Car, Call the President, and a Buckaroo Banzai Adventure, or Find the Jet Car, said the President, a Buckaroo Banzai Thriller, that's it. And then it ended up changing to The Lepers from Saturn, or Buckaroo Banzai and The Lepers from Saturn, and then that ended up becoming, obviously, the movie we know today. But he had written over like 500 pages of different adventures. No wonder the movie's so scattered. Yes, <laughs> yes. But he and Richter both really like the character. And there's this ongoing theme that we'll talk about when we get to the end of this movie. And all of these different things that there's this big worldwide crime organization called the World Crime League. And it's run by a guy named Hanoi San. I think that's how you say it. Hanoi Shah or something like that. Mm. You probably, I assume, watched to the end and saw the title card for the next Buckaroo Bonsai oh, yeah. movie. Buckaroo Bonsai will be back. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, I'm like, oh, against the World Crime make- League. Okay, because I remember seeing that yesterday and thinking, oh, there yeah. must have been plans to make a second one of these. Yeah, this is where the quote-unquote villain of the story comes in, David Begelman, who was a producer, and he was running MGM for a while. And he he ended up saying, okay, I want to be in the business with this. Now, David Begelman is extremely famous. He started his career out as an agent, and he represented people like Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, Liza Minnelli, Woody Allen, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Fred Astaire. He was a big-time agent. Sounds he, like it. He went and he took over Columbia Pictures, and he was the, the studio head that kind of created what they call a package movie, where you get a director, a star, and a writer all together, and you say, you three are going to make a movie together. He famously produced Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Well, in the late 1970s, an actor by the name of Cliff Robertson, he was uh, he played uh, Ben Parker, Peter's uncle in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man oh, movies. okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a pretty big Western actor before that, and one day he gets a letter from the IRS that he did not fill out this certain form when he had received a $10,000 bonus from Columbia. And he's like, I never got that check. So the IRS said, check's right here and your signature's on it. So they looked at it and it was a forged signature. Oh, boy. And they found out that Begelman had basically, he had embezzled about $65,000 up to that time in the mid-70s by creating these fake checks for these actors. Now, you would think that would put him in jail or get him kicked out of Hollywood. It did neither. Yeah. As a matter of fact... Cliff Robertson was essentially blackballed from movies for almost 10 years. Well, he didn't do anything. No, he did not. But he blew the whistle on and the, the story is a lot of studio chiefs probably did this. He got a call from the IRS <laughs> saying you haven't filed this. And he said, I never got that check. I don't think that's blowing the whistle. Yeah, well, that's not how things work, because Begelman, while he quietly did leave Columbia or leave um, MGM, he or he left Columbia, went to MGM. And then he left to create his own movie studio called Sherwood Studios. Now, okay. that's where he had had Buckaroo Banzai, he'd had Richter and Rauch under, Mac Rauch under contract, and they were going to get the movie made in 1981, but then a writer's strike hit. So uh, 
they wouldn't work on it. Uh, by that time, he was he left MGM and then he created this new company and he brought them along with him. Now, during the course of uh, his his time working with Buck Rubans, I really like this prod this this uh, project. So he would always be involved. He'd always tell him, no, do this. No, do this. No, do this. And one of the big things he said is, we're only making this one movie, so remove every single reference to the World Crime League and Hanoi Zan. Now, there was the first... You did not see the first five minutes of this movie, okay? The movie opened with a crawl telling the story of Buck Rubanzai and then went to him performing surgery, Jeff Goldblum. Yes, the original opening in this movie is a, a little like Super 8 film shot by a young Buckaroo Banzai as his mother and father, his mother played by Jamie Lee Curtis, were mm. getting ready to test this dimensional car thing, the oscillation overthruster. <laughs> the overthruster. They said, it, <laughs> yeah. they said it almost as much as uh, Avengers mentioned that damn thing in the first Avengers movie. Yes. You see this and it's being narrated by Clancy Brown what had happened. And before... His father is able to take off. His car explodes, killing his father. You see Jamie Lee Curtis running out to the runway. And they make reference that the head of the World Crime League, Hanoi Zan, had planted a bomb to kill Buckaroo Banzai's father. And then the movie goes to where you are. So that original opening they had to remove, it is on the DVD. That's why I've seen it. That's why I know about it. And you could tell that Richter, I mean, you even listened to interviews with him and Mac Rauch. They just were tired of Begelman coming in there. At one time, he was all mad because at the press conference, Buckaroo's wearing the red red glasses. And he's like, uh-huh. heroes don't wear red glasses. Well, um, he had right. You got red glasses I on say, right I, I do. <laughs> Yours aren't as circular, as big as his were. But. No, no. But all these little things that they kept putting in, they noticed, though, near the end of filming that he wasn't sending them any more notes. So there is actually a scene in Buckaroo Banzai. the watermelon one? Yes. Because they didn't explain that. Yes. All. I'm, I'm going to play for you. <laughs> it's like 10 seconds, this scene. Now you have Jeff Goldblum and this other guy walking through a lab. Reno. Yeah, Reno. Reno was, was walking through it. Yeah. They're walking through the, the Banzai Institute. They're, they're under attack by these aliens. Again, we'll explain it all the best we can. While they're walking, this they see this watermelon on this like press, and this is the dialogue. Why is there a watermelon there? I'll tell you that he never never tells, never tells <laughs> that scene. And both Mac Rauch and Richter have, have confirmed this. That scene was put in just to see if Begelman was paying attention. Oh, wow. Good for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> I made it into the movie. It was memorable. I remembered it. Yeah. So let's talk about this movie. All right. Let's kind okay. of break it down for people here. Most people who have seen it have not seen that opening scene. They're like you that starts off with, the jet car and everybody talking about how great Buckaroo Banzai is. One of my favorite people in the whole movie. Um, uh, perfect Tommy. Yeah. Perfect. I thought <laughs> when I watched that too, I kept looking at that guy. I'm like, is that John Grease? Is that Uncle Rico? I'm like <laughs> watching him thinking. And then when the movie ended, I looked at the cast and it wasn't Uncle Rico, but that dude looked like a young John Grease, a young yes. Uncle Rico. Yes. And he, you've got perfect. Tommy was my favorite character in the whole movie. Too, oh yeah. Life. Oh yeah. No, there's a scene in there where he's like, give her a jacket. Why me? And he says, cause you're perfect. And he's like, you've, you got <laughs> yeah, a point. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> But he like shreds guitar in the back. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So you've got Buckaroo's crew, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, and there's Also, I just, (laughs) I need to say, you said Peter Weller and Buckaroo Banzai and the crawl that I saw, the the writing in the beginning of the movie said he had, he's essentially half Asian, half American. Peter Weller, I believe you told me off mic, is from Stevens Point. <laughs> yeah, for, we've been there a lot. Born in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> he is not half Asian. I can guarantee no. you that. Oh, and before I forget, and this goes back to Begelman. So at first, they wanted he wanted a big actor to play mm-hmm. Buckaroo Banzai, but both Rauk and Richter, or Mac Rauk, I keep getting that wrong, and Richter were saying like, no, we want somebody uh, not as well known. And one of the first people they brought to Begelman was Tom Hanks. And Begelman oh. said he's a nobody. Oh my god! Did not would not let him. <laughs> that would have. I mean, I again very happy with what I saw, but Tom Hanks in that role because this is like is this pre bachelor party? Yeah, I think it's right, probably right around the same time. That would have been interesting. I wonder. I wonder how that would have played out. Yeah, not that big of a star. The dude's like <laughs> one of the most famous people in the world. I understand what they're saying about. It. I think Richter also pushed a little bit back on that because they wanted somebody who 
who looked like they could be there, they could be a really smart person, but also looked like they would, in his eyes or in his words, get grease on themselves from building stuff, inventing things, doing sure. all this other stuff. But yeah, he's supposed to be, uh, Buckaroo's supposed to be, he's got an Asian father and an American mother. Yep. They're waiting for him with the U.S. Secretary of Defense, I think, to test this jet car, which they don't tell you what it's going to do. Nope. But he's doing brain surgery with mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum hanging out with him. Yeah. Like taking <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is essentially they're taking notes and, you know, Bucker is performing surgery and saying like all this cool stuff while he's there. And yeah. And then all of a sudden he's on a runway testing yeah. out a jet jet thruster and that. That scene was hilarious to me because when I kept looking at the the writing on the screen, I noticed like signed was spelled wrong, sealed was spelled wrong. (laughs) And I looked at all the computer graphics and I got like heavy, heavy weird science vibes from the computer graphics. Yeah, it is. This is all practical effects, obviously, before Mm -hmm. CG. But while his car's going fast, he suddenly turns off somewhere. Turns left, yeah. yeah everybody's like, oh, what's going on? But uh, his, Clancy Brown. Yes. Clancy yeah. Brown liked that, what he did there. <laughs> Rawhide. And <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> the overthruster turns on, this blue light shoots into a mountain, and he drives yep. through the mountain. Now, it's what's I in the it mountain. Was space travel. Yeah. It's what's in the mountain that's a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. What is your interpretation of what happened? It looked like there was a skeleton as he was going through the mountain. Everything went kind of blue and black. It looked like there was a skeleton. And when he came out and got out of the car that looked like it had been smoking or whatever and went underneath, it looked like a brain was attached Mm -hmm. to the bottom of the car. Now, they bring that up later. I don't truly know what it is. I also wrote in my notes there to surgery from what I think is space travel. (laughs) And then my next note is, is that a brain? And then I continue to watch the movie. So this is where Jonathan Lithgow comes in. Who, oh, my God. Again, he is <laughs> a performance of a life. Yes. <laughs> um, you see interviews with him today, and I'll still bring this up. And he how was much great. He, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he was out of he took this assignment and had a blast with it. So supposedly when uh, Richter and Mac Rauch went to Peter Weller, he said, I don't understand the what type of movie this is. Like you, you have to give me a better. <laughs> yeah, he's like you got to give me. And they, they were like, look, he's this is going to be a big break for him. All this other stuff. It's a big studio production, famous producer, all this stuff. And he's like, okay. They went to they. Um, Mac Rauch wrote the part of 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 Lazardo for for Jonathan mm-hmm. Lithgow, and he said. And when you went to Lithgow, Lithgow said the same thing. I have no idea what this movie is about. <laughs> well, in reference to that too, when I rented it on Amazon yesterday, it was listed as science fiction mystery drama and comedy yeah they couldn't pick a lane at all <laughs> no so what they told him though is they said look it's a great like jekyll and hyde character you're gonna be able to do all sorts of stuff the word that richter uses you can make a feast out of this role and he so did. lithgow said all right and he went his personal tailor for the movie studio was a uh, guy had a really heavy italian accent so lithgow worked with him to create this voice and this tailor is credited in the movie as Jonathan Lithgow's dialect coach. Nice. So, oh, okay. So <laughs> Italian, because I wrote here, is Lithgow Russian? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, like, again, just after Is This a Brain, I have Lithgow looks weird with weird with hair. Yeah. Teeth are messed up. Wow, this movie's really silly. <laughs> and then before Lithgow, is Lithgow Russian, I wrote 10 minutes in and confused, but really like the movie so far. Yeah. He sees news of what Buckaroo Bombs I did, so he attaches some weird stuff to us shocks himself <laughs> to, like, that's a shocking deal. So weird. to when he goes back now buckaroos his mentor is uh-huh. a professor hikita robert ito played back in like pre-world war ii dr emilio lazardo jonathan lithgow and then dr hikita they create this overthruster that's going to yeah. allow them to go through solid matter and <laughs> He the whole seems th- amazing. Yes, yeah. The whole thing is Hakita's like don't. He's like trying to stop him, but uh, yeah. Lazardo's all excited, and he goes and he like halfway goes through the wall, yeah. and they see images of these creatures beating on him, mm-hmm. and then when they pull him out, he's got big red hair, crazy eyes, because <laughs> he was relatively you know quote unquote normal up yeah. until that point. But I loved it when he's when he gets on his little vehicle, he puts on like an old timey mm-hmm. pilot's helmet. <laughs> yeah. He's all smiling with his goggles on and everything. And seeing John Lithgow, half of his body in this weird world and the other half just like flailing about 
man, that is like a respected actor, and he really, really <laughs> yes, he went did. for it. <laughs> yes, he did. Now, probably of my friends who have seen this, there's a line we use. Uh, this is where Jonathan Banks comes in. He's uh, mm-hmm. works at the insane asylum, and he's like, <laughs> he's like orderly or something. Yeah, he's like, your TV's <laughs> taking too much power, doctor, and. He's like, oh, that's okay. I'm going home tomorrow. And he's like, yeah, okay. That's a very good one. <laughs> but here's so, so Jonathan Bank, I keep on calling Mike, starts yeah. laughing. And this is probably one of my favorite lines that I just got to play it. Not for lying, you can't, the monkey boy. <laughs> you said that to me i didn't know that was from this movie because you said that to me in, in yeah. company and i was just like oh that's just one of my brother's weird things that he said yeah so Monkey boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, then you see him the next day he's got all of his stuff and oh yeah all John, his gear jonathan banks is like what are you doing he picks up a phone and he's looking for john big booty B I G B O O T E and a, a, like a thing over the E. The, the bonsai did it. I got the, the overthruster. <laughs> We're going home. And Jonathan Banks is like, hey, what are you doing? And <laughs> Lithgow just straight up grabs him and breaks his neck. <laughs> yeah. Grabs him with his left hand, pushes him against the wall while he's on a phone call, which I believe uh, Mike Airman Trout, Jonathan Banks says, that better not be collect. Or something <laughs> yeah. Like that. And yeah, he grabs him and almost comically snaps his neck. And then I swear to you, Jonathan Banks is still breathing, even though he's supposed to be dead. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And there goes Dr. Lazardo. Now he he's, refers he's to his, he refers to himself as John Warfin when he yeah. talks to him. And I'll get to all of that stuff when okay. when the moment comes. Because you're right, this movie doesn't hold your hand. It just throws <laughs> you in. You're like, what the hell's well, going on here? After we have seen Jonathan Lithgow murder Jonathan Banks, the very next scene, it's like a full-on musical number. Yes. Peter Weller walks out there with this band, Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers. And there's like, he's shredding guitar. <laughs> he's playing a little like horn. His band's got horns. And then he just stops because he can sense somebody cry. Yeah. So that's a great segue <laughs> because there's a million things I love about this whole like musical number. First off, I, I had to look up. I thought it was like one of the Simpsons actors or something who played the club owner. <laughs> Where totally. I can't, I can't find it. If somebody <laughs> finds it, please send it to me. But he's like, "Hey, I don't care what you do in so and so, but this is New Jersey. People here yeah. expect a show." And it's like, "Okay." And, what? <laughs> and when the band's going too, first off, a lot of horns. There's two dudes oh. playing saxophone. But it's like a full-on horn section yeah. for this band. But at the beginning, one of the dudes playing saxophone is actually playing two saxophones. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't recognize that. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. <laughs> and it, it is. They're just, like you said, they're just shredding there up oh, yeah. there. And then he does. He hears somebody crying. This is when we're introduced to. Stops the whole show. Yes. Inter- it puts a spotlight on it. <laughs> yes. To Ellen Bar- Barkin's Penny Pretty, who. Uh. She's talking about she has no more money. She spent the last of it on this booze. She has nowhere to stay and all this other stuff. And in the words of Buckaroo Banzai, he wants to he wants to cheer her up. So he goes through, tells people, hey, hey, don't be me, do her and all this stuff. And then he gives us this bit of wisdom. No matter where you go, there you are. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then she proceeds to try and murder herself. Yes. With a gun. Which she gets hit in the shoulder, gun goes off, and then everybody, crowd, patrons, the entire band on stand, every I swear everybody to God, everybody has a gun. pulled out a gun. <laughs> yeah. I wrote, why are there so many guns at this show? Did anybody do any check? Like, everybody. Like, that's the first. I didn't know who Nevada or Perfect Tommy were at this time. Nevada and Perfect Tommy, I thought they were just, like, in this band or whatever and had nothing else to do. And they rip out guns, like, <laughs> yeah. shotguns and stuff. It's yeah. insane. Like, the amount of guns was nuts. This yeah. is height of 80s like making movies you get it you could bring a gun into a show oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and this leads us to because now buckaroo wants to there's something about this woman he wants to know about and he they go to pick up jeff goldblum because he's going to join the hong kong cavaliers and this is where you see him in full cowboy gear with the <laughs> big he's even and, got the big pants <laughs> yeah and his character's name is new jersey which I and like he says something along the lines of, "Oh, I thought you'd give me a warning when you guys were showing up." Like, okay, but why are you in a full cowboy? <laughs> well, and he, well, nobody in the Hong Kong Cavaliers dresses like that. They all wore suits on stage. Yeah. Well, Reno even says, uh, "Did you forget your Spurs, Doc?" And he's like, "Why would you say that?" <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so this was like I feel like these guys were as absurd as comics before. Like they were like Tim and Eric before. Tim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is where you find out that Buckaroo goes. He finds Penny in the jail and he talks with Such her. A weird scene where they're like lovingly talking to one another <laughs> through a jail. Cell. Yeah. And perfect. Tommy's just hanging out by some other jail cell. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is where you learn that Penny is adopted and Buckaroo's wife, who he recently lost or something happened, you yep. know, she's not around anymore. Looks Picture's just like, over, yeah, yep. looks just <laughs> like Penny. He bails her out. They go immediately to this press conference, which again, <laughs> I mentioned at the top, yeah. he is talking about finding matter in a different dimension. Mm -hmm. And there are like, a dozen people there, yes. maybe total. Yeah, and they're telling them they have to hurry up and get out of here because there's a motorcycle show coming. Yeah, yeah. It's like, like Harley Davidson everywhere. Yeah. yeah, I'm like this is a little bit more important <laughs> than a motorcycle show. Now, granted, I've never driven a motorcycle. I don't plan on it, but Buckaroo Banzai found matter in a different dimension. Yes. That's a little <laughs> bit more important. Yeah. Well, while he's halfway there, he suddenly has to get up because there's a call from the president. <laughs> and I said, this is like my son. Right? <laughs> yeah. And you have Dr. Hakita is there. You have Perfect Tommy is there. Reno's there. And he gives the overthruster to Penny. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum's there, too. New yeah. Jersey's there, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she's like, oh, here, do you want your overthruster back? And he's like, why don't you hold on to it for a while? <laughs> <laughs> and he gives, like, this impassioned plea about what he found and how he found it and what they did and everything. And then, yeah, he just gives the overthruster, too. This lady who looks like his wife. Yeah. We have no idea what happened to her. We just know something happened to her. So when he goes to get his phone call from the president, there's some weird just like uh, interference. And yeah. suddenly he gets hit with a, a little lightning bolt out of the phone. And then he then he goes nuts. He's on the floor yeah. and he's writing Bye. something on his hand. <laughs> and he runs out into the press conference. And you see him earlier. You see Vincent Chiavelli, uh, Christopher Lloyd, and Dan Hedea sitting in the audience. And he's like, they're right there, evil yeah. from the planet 10, <laughs> black electroids. And they do this movie did come out before they live. And okay, all right. They, the way the electroids look, they said they came up with the idea because one night they were out to dinner and somebody was eating lobster and was close to their face. And Richter okay. liked the way that looked. Sure. Yeah. I just didn't know which one came first. Yeah. And the whole electroids, their whole thing, they wanted everything to not look like your typical sci-fi movie. That's why sure. their ships all look weird and things like that. <laughs> they look like spiders, which yes. I'm sure we'll talk about. Yes. So here shortly. <laughs> now you see that there's these aliens and kind of like a they live thing. They look like normal people to everyone else. But now Buckaroo can see who they are. Yeah. And I'm going to skip a little ahead. We're going to go back. But you find out later on that. There's a, uh, what was it? it was John Emmendahl or something like that. Rosalind Cash, who's a famous actress, African-American woman, again. Oh, died, yeah, yeah, yeah. Died young, uh, but she uh, died young with cancer. But she was, she had done a lot of stuff, was a, a very, very big actor. Had acted with, uh, had done Shakespeare with James Earl Jones. Okay. Uh, she had. She, she had, I didn't know who she was, but she brought gravitas yes. to this insane movie. And also. That scene you're talking about, why did they wear bubble wrap? Oh, faces? yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know there's like, oh, it's so bright in here. We have to wear something. But and I know it's the early 80s, mid 80s, but you could have made something that wasn't just no for a movie. Yeah. For saying. a movie, when I get into its budget, I'll talk about it. It, it did not have a small budget. It had a big budget. Yeah. But so those those masks were hilarious. Yeah. But I'm jumping ahead here just to explain, because you find out that. There's the planet 10, which is mm -hmm. that you just don't, they just say it's called planet 10. And there were two factions, the black electroids and the red electroids. Now, you would mm -hmm. think the black ones are black and the red are red. They're, it's not really. I mean, it's kind no. of. But the red electroids were uh, run by this guy named John Warfin, who declared himself like the Lord. And again, she tells you, Rosalind Cash tells you all this in like two minutes. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. She it, lays it all yeah. out. And they, the black electroids, banned them into the eighth dimension. Well, when Dr. Lazardo tried his thing and got halfway stuck, the like brain of John Warfin was implanted into him. Okay. And, so, and the red electroids were able to escape to come here to Earth. So she says, basically, that if Buckaroo doesn't take care of this, she's going to go blow up Russia, and they're going to think it's the U.S., and the nuclear war is going to happen. Yep. So going back... 
there's a I think it's one part of the movie I think is a bit overlong. The red electroids take take uh, Dr. Hikita. Uh, mm-hmm. Buckaroo's running around. It's like the, at nighttime. Yeah. That's where the hunters are out. Yeah, the right? two. And they're yeah. actually listed as Bubba 1 and Bubba 2 in the credits. Hilarious. But <laughs> Hilarious. they're out hunting and they see this thing floating in the sky, which is one of the Electroid ships. And, um, the good ones. Though. Yeah, yeah. The red or the black ones. Black Electroids yeah. are the good ones. So they shoot at it because that's what you do. And, when you're uh, Bubba 1 and Bubba 2. Yeah. <laughs> they go, you find, you see one of them come out, and they all look like reggae singers for some weird reason. They're, and they all have Jamaican accents. Yes. One, I'm John Parker. Uh, like, so, like John Parker. That's I want to talk a little bit about him for a moment. My favorite scene is with him and Buckaroo Banzai, and I know I'm skipping ahead. My mm-hmm. favorite scene in the whole movie is when the two of them are talking to the president. And Buckaroo gets a call or something else. He's like, okay, well, sorry, we gotta go. And he just walks away. <laughs> like, there's no, he's talking to the president of the United States. He's like, all right, thanks. See you later. It's like a 30 second conversation. He's just, I gotta go. Oh, See yeah. You, president. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, John Parker is played by Carl Lumbly. And I watched this again last night and I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to himself, this guy's been in some other things. He's had to have been in like other stuff. And then I, I looked up his his IMDb, and he played. Uh, did you ever watch the Falcon and the Winter Soldier? A little bit, like we dipped in and out of it. Okay. Yes, but I know of it. There was the uh, Isaiah Bradley, the first black soldier that was given the super yeah. soldier. A lot of the show is about basically how the black super soldier was kind of forgotten by history. That's yeah. Carl Lumbly. That's the same guy okay. that played John Parker. All right, so, everybody looks so young in this movie. Oh like, yeah, you know who they are, but. So you saying that, like, I, I, I see that now. Clancy Brown looks so oh, much yeah. younger. Lithgow. Even Peter Weller. Even Dan Hedaya, who I recently just watched Rookie of the Year. And he's like the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. that, so it's crazy. So they go, you find out that they save Hakita. Uh, Buckaroo puts the thing he wrote on his hand on Hakita's on forehead. forehead. Yeah. And he has to wear that on his forehead the rest, <laughs> yeah, of, the the rest of the movie. Yeah, the rest of the movie. Got it. You find out that's a formula for like a, a gas that can make people see who the electroids are. And John Parker wants to work with Buckaroo. They go through a whole like fight at the Buckaroo Bonsai Institute where sadly Rawhide is hit with some weird... Uh, the guy working the jet car, too, they're hit with these, like, weird spider things yeah, that they and, like, spit he, out. And it almost paralyzes Clancy Brown. Like, he says he can't move his legs or whatever, and, yeah, he eventually... That that bummed me out. Oh, thing. yeah, that sucks. I, I understand it, but it's like... And also, when they're... Before they go to fight or whatever, is it Goldblum who finally has the formula, and he keeps looking back at John Parker oh, is yeah. like kind of freaked out by him the whole time. Yeah, that's the end part. Before- perfect time, he's cleaning a gun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> speaking of Goldblum. So though, many guns in this movie. Yeah. This is a little bit of a longer scene, but it's, there's a few reasons I really like it. They're all sitting around, and you could tell that perfect Tommy and New Jersey don't exactly get along. Oh, yeah. But they're sitting there, and they're going through, and they make this discovery. And I'm going to, like I said, the scene's about two minutes. I'm going to play this scene, Ty, and then we're going to talk about it. All these people applied for Social Security cards in the same town in New Jersey, exact same date. New Jersey. 46 Yo-Yo Dine employees, Grover's Mills, New Jersey, 11-138. I got some pictures, boys. Here's a practical joke. Check out these names. John Yaya, John Parrott. John Big Booty? Maybe not John Nolan, John O'Connor? Away, Jose. John Smallberries? It's a joke. Maybe that's what uh, Buckaroo was talking about when he said... No, no, Reno, there are no ages, no places of birth. Uh, Grover's Mill. Grover's Mill, 1938. Why is that so familiar? They all have the same first name. John, 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 John. Somebody's playing games here. This is statistically impossible. Uh, I don't know. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, uh, November one, October, uh, thirty days have September, April, June, November. When short February is done, all the rest have thirty-one. October thirty-first, Halloween. Oh, um, don't you get it, Orson Welles? You mean the guy from the old wine commercial? <laughs> Halloween, nineteen thirty-eight. Uh, War of the Worlds. That fake radio news broadcast that got everybody scared, thinking real live Martians. We're landing in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Then it all just turned out to be a hoax. 
so. So maybe uh, uh, it wasn't a hoax. Or, I mean, maybe it isn't a hoax. For those of you that may not know, but I'm sure a lot of you do, in 1938, Orson Welles did a radio program uh, recreating War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. And they even before they said it, they said this is a dramatic interpretation, da da da. But a lot of people didn't hear that first part, and it caused an actual real to life panic in northern New Jersey because people thought aliens were attacking. Simpsons do a great Treehouse of Horror spoof yeah. of that. Oh, just wait, I've got a huge Simpsons connection in this movie coming up here. Oh, soon. Okay, all right. <laughs> The idea, the conceit of the movie is that that actually really did happen. And mm-hmm. Orson Welles, and this is where the red electroids came from, and they're all named John, and they all work for Yo-Yo Dime, this company, <laughs> yeah, Yo-Yo Dime. I, I couldn't figure out the name the whole time until I saw the truck. <laughs> oh, yeah, but that's what I said. There's a huge Simpsons connection with that that I'll get to later. This is now they decide they need to go to Yo-Yo Dime, the Secretary of Defense is like, where's my bomber? And just walking through. And the place is filthy. It's filled with water. And what is one of the aliens who works there, the, I don't know the correct word, the little person from Twin Peaks? Oh, yes, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I saw that, that's what I wrote in my notes. Is that the dude from Twin Peaks? Now, quick little side. The reason why I recognize that so well is that when I was 19, we were moving out of the childhood home I grew up in moving to the home that my parents live in now. But I was staying at our old house because I had a job out in this area, in that area. And I would sleep with a little TV on the floor. And one night I woke up to that actor dancing in a (laughs) devil outfit on Twin Peaks. So I will never forget what that actor looks like. And uh, that place is disgusting. (laughs) But but they say (laughs) it's where aliens are supposed to be. Uh, John Warfin is up there giving some speech. And you Hitler likes speech, yeah. man. And you could it see it was insane. Yeah, and I you, wrote my notes there. Lithgow yeah. is terrifying. Yeah, was, <laughs> and man. you could tell that John Big Bootay was not thrilled at all with he it. He was upset. The overthrusters were garbage. Yeah. He kept telling them they're looking for Bonsai's overthruster, which Penny has on her. Who they have Penny? They kidnapped yep. her, and they're torturing her. Yeah. They, One thing I do want to ask oh. too is like while they're torturing and doing stuff, John Big Bootay as an alien puts on glasses. And I wrote, why would an alien need glasses? <laughs> like, and this, you know, Buckaroo wears them and perfect Tommy wears them. Like I get it. They're human. You know, their eyesight gets poor, the older they get. Why would an alien need spectacles to, uh, to read? I think, I think uh, Christopher Lloyd needed them. So Christopher <laughs> Lloyd was again, everybody in this movie went for it. Christopher oh, they Lloyd did. was right there with Lithgow in this role. Yeah, I and loved they, Christopher Lloyd in this movie. They end up like Bonsai turns himself in. He, he also, a, when Bonsai's going there, I do need to point out, he's driving like a tank. Yes. With what I assume is a missile. He puts on his blinker. And I wrote <laughs> yes, my thing That's right. I forgot <laughs> about that. Thought that I could not forget it. I, that was one thing I noticed right away. He's in some shock tower that, uh, yeah. <laughs> that Warfin keeps shocking him. A, a lot I did, of, Oh, I was going to say, I, I read a thing about that afterward where Peter Weller hadn't heard Lithgow's voice. <laughs> so I guess he kept laughing while they were doing that. Because <laughs> that's the first time he had heard his voice in the movie. Like I said, I do love this movie, but this mm-hmm. ending is really all just thrown together. Oh, yeah. It's scattered. Yeah. And so you don't exactly see what happens with Penny. They put some weird slug like on it. <laughs> but like, they pick it up and throw it as perfect yeah. Tommy's saying, don't touch that thing. <laughs> yeah. Mother picks it up and chucks it. Warfin and his people, they get on the ship and he's like, keeps calling them John Big Booty. And he's like, Bootay. So he just shoots them. <laughs> yeah. Also, why is there, and I get it, when Buckaroo was in trouble, they made a call to everybody. Why is a child on Oh, yeah. The, why does that child have a shot? <laughs> yes, the blue blazer, the blue blazer regulars. Because I love, he does it twice in the movie. Perfect Tommy is like, should we get a strike team? And he's like, no, just the irregulars. Twice he says the strike team. <laughs> and like, I get the dad being there. Yeah. Why did he have to bring his son along? Yeah, this dad like has a gas station, but owns a helicopter. Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, you have you have this child with a gun who puts the gun on the Secretary of Defense. And yeah, that, <laughs> that Secretary of Defense was wild too. Like, I need to have your name, sir. <laughs> his overthruster doesn't work they crash through the wall parker john parker and buckaroo are in the ship that are chasing them and like i said it's all just kind of thrown together they shoot a laser blow up Warfin's ship he's dead the yeah. the black electroids are like okay we won't blow up russia now and you see buckaroo parachuting down 
I, mean, I don't know and, why John Parker didn't just land or why no. the hell they have a parachute in an alien ship, but whatever. Also, he opened his parachute way too early oh, because he was still in the clouds. Yes. And he's just floating down. Yep. Floating. And then when he lands, he lands kind of rough. And it's like, well, you, you would think you'd come down really slow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. no, he yeah, he lands and he was going to try to help Penny. But New Jersey's like, don't worry, I'll take care of yeah. her. And he sees New Jersey and says, I'm sorry, she didn't make it. He go- oh, yeah. He goes in there and. Pulls the sheet at, off and decides he's going to kiss a dead woman. But yeah, huh? you see, it's electricity. Yeah, you I, see, I wrote right there. Why is he still electric? Well, you <laughs> see, John M. Doll, she like basically gives him one last thing and oh. kisses her. She wakes up and then they put the blinds down because I guess they're going to do it. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not it because the end credits are walking okay. through like. Uh, so <laughs> let me get to that. There's some jamming music going on in the background. Let me get to that. This is where Begelman comes in and he sees the, the final cut of the movie and he's like, I don't like the way it ends. It needs more. Now, they're done with the movie. They have made the entire movie. And they did everything that Begelman told them to do. Uh, before mm-hmm. I forget, uh, David Begelman went on to fail a couple more times. And then in 1995, at the age of 73, he was found in a hotel room with a gunshot, a gunshot wound to his head that was ruled a suicide. So oh, that's that's okay. where he was kind of a pile of garbage anyways. But yeah, he's like, I want more. So Richter went back, found a guy that had like directed some music videos and said, hey, I need to add about two or three minutes to this movie. Can you do something? They brought all the actors back together. They went to the L.A. River, and mm-hmm. you see this sign card that says, Buckaroo Banzai will be back with uh, yeah. against the World Crime League. And then you hear this. Now, during this music... You see Buckaroo come to the L.A. River, the whole mm-hmm. big kind of empty basin, and then all the actors, other actors, start coming through while the credits roll, and they're just walking. Yeah, and they're walking with purpose, but yeah. nothing. They don't say anything or anything like no. that. Now that that music's rad, by the way. Yeah. I love that little beat at the end. So they did not have this music made yet, okay? So what okay. they did is they played the Billy Joel song "Uptown Girl" while they all did the scene. <laughs> <laughs> so just like blaring yes, uptown girl yes. while all these actors are what man these people had to think like this is a wild ride that i'm on right now now a lot of people have done something similar credits like this but most famously and some of this might be apocryphal but the way it were so the movie the life aquatic with steve mm-hmm. zizu the paul anderson movie jeff goldblum's in that movie Wes Anderson. Or Wes Anderson. Paul Anderson's (laughs) the terrible one. Um, But Wes Anderson. Jeff Goldblum's in that movie, and he talked about this, and Wes Anderson's a big fan of Buckaroo Banzai. So the end of The Life Aquatic is done the same way. I've only seen that once when we saw it. You see Bill Murray start walking, and they're doing the credits, and other people join him and stuff. Okay. And at the end, yeah. they all get on their boat. So that end credit sequence has been something kind Started of alleged. something. Yeah. No, I was, yeah, like I thought the music was cool. And I'm like, oh, this is an interesting way to do the end credits. But here we are. And I even wrote, you know, after all that stuff happened, after everything, I, my last two notes were, or three notes, pardon me, were possible sequels never happened, I guess, is mm-hmm. what I wrote there. And then wild end credits. And then finally, my final note I took after watching this movie was, Still un- still unclear about the plot of this movie. Still loved it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Let, let's talk about the legacy. We talked about this movie for about 30 minutes, and then people probably could think we're insane people. We're crazy sure, people. Sure, absolutely, yeah. I'm going to start first with what uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel said about this movie. Now, it was originally supposed to come out in June of 84, but uh, this was the year that Gremlins was out, uh, Temple of Doom, stuff like that. So they moved it into August. And that, that was around that time Star Trek Three, I think, came out on the uh, at the movies or whatever the name of the show was the time when Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel covered this movie. I'm going to play for what they said. Now, I'm going to warn everybody. I looked for a few different places. The audio is only in one channel. So if you're listening on headphones or something, you're only going to hear it at one side. This is a Siskel and Ebert review of Buckaroo Banzai. That was Jeff Goldblum as the ace scientist there. The movie stars Peter Weller as the Buckaroo Banzai. 
a young Japanese-American genius who is a brain surgeon, a racing car driver, and a rock singer, among many other things. And his mission in this movie, I guess, yeah. is to save the earth and also to get some more gigs for his rock band. <laughs> a lot of the individual moments in Buckaroo Banzai are very funny, and the movie is filled with so many little jokes in the background that you probably have to watch it two or three times to figure them all out. But it's impossible to figure out where you stand with this movie. It's all over the map. And finally, I had no real idea who half the characters were or what they wanted or why I was supposed to be interested in them. So I have to give it reluctantly a thumbs down with admiration for its little flashes of genius in between. And I liked it because of all of what it was trying to do and because there were a lot of jokes. You and I see so many outer space yeah. adventures or on this planet adventures that are so routine and so predictable and all they're trying to do is dazzle us with the same old special effects that are five years old. I, to me, I just laughed a lot in this picture, and that was enough for me. I think this is a film that could get cult status. I think it's going to be thrown away by its film company, but I think that people ought to try and find this picture. I think they'll have a weird, funny time at the movies. It's kind of what you said, Todd. Yeah, I mean, it's not <laughs> not very different than what, what I was saying or what we were doing, but also I... I have to assume this movie did become a call classic. As, yes. Okay. Yeah. That's what I figured would be the most. Well, I mean, it's notable for a lot of things, but like the most, the biggest takeaway is how big of a following this movie got. Let's talk a little bit about that. Before I do that, I, I don't want to forget this. So yeah, I keep teasing Yo-Yo Dine, Yo-Yo Dine propulsion systems. Mm -hmm. So Yo-Yo Dine actually comes from a Thomas Pynchon novel, his first novel. Thomas Pynchon? Yeah. I told okay. you. I told you there's a big <laughs> Simpsons, big Simpsons tied to this. Okay. Yeah. His debut novel called V, which came out in 1963, talks a lot about uh, Thomas Pynchon had worked for Boeing for a little while. And so he created this company, Yo-Yo Dine, as kind of a stand-in for Boeing for his novels. Okay. Kind of, again, Thomas Pinchon, then Buckaroo Banzai talks about it. The Star Trek series. Yo-Yo Dine's a company in Star Trek that makes oh. a lot of, like, starship parts. And even in the show Deep Space Nine, you see they, they have a place, um, a, a shop there. So even okay. the 1990 film Never Ending Story 2 talks about <laughs> Yo-Yo Dine. It, it's shown up in a couple little things. But Thomas Pinchon. How do mm -hmm. you know who Thomas Pinchon is? He wears a bag over his head, and he's the reclusive author that the Simpsons always make fun of. Thomas Pinchon <laughs> has provided his voice to two Simpsons episodes. He he has been <laughs> but he's supposed to be reclusive. <laughs> yes, and here's the thing about he is he's very reclusive. Doesn't do press interviews. People don't know what he really looks like. Hence That's the why he has yeah said, yeah <laughs> the Simpsons thing. He's I mean he wrote Inherent Vice and Gravity's Rainbow. He's written some of the most seminal books of the last 50 years but he's incredibly recl reclusive but he did the simpsons and he said he did it because his son liked the show that's awesome <laughs> I, I don't know anything about him i haven't read those books i know of them i haven't read them he I, i'm a fan of this guy so yeah i hope i hope he's not problematic but nobody knows anything no, about him, no so. no he's been married <laughs> i think to the same lady forever he writes a book like every 10 years or so and good for him and, so back to Buckaroo Banzai. Um, the movie had a budget, and again, this is the early 80s, of $17 million. There were not a lot That's, of, there were yeah. known actors in it, but again, a lot of people, this was their first big breakout hit, their, their first okay. role. The movie made just over $6 million. It was... Oh, uh, uh, so a massive flop. Yeah, m just massive. And it, it was for its time. And again, this is a summer after you've had Gremlins, like I said. Temple of Doom. I think it was the same year Ghostbusters came out. I mean, it's a, it did kind of get lost in all that stuff, but. Well, and it's just weird. Yeah. Like, at least those other movies, to their credit, have a story that go along with them. And this movie, I actually compare a lot. I talk a lot when I talk to people about it is that, uh, that Richard Kelly movie, Southland Tales. This is a better movie than that. Movie. It is, it is, but it's it's a movie that had an entire it's not nearly as long. No, no, no. <laughs> I think the movie's like an hour and a half or so. Hour forty, I believe. Yeah, is yeah. What it said was the runtime, but it's got this huge history around it, and mm -hmm. I don't think losing that first five minutes harms the movie in any way. It doesn't really. It'd be nice though to kind of know why he is instead of just reading about it. Yeah. And obviously, Richter and Mac Rauch thought, okay, we're going to throw this World Crime League teaser at the end, and everybody's going to be like, oh, well, we obviously never got that. 
but we actually did get it. How? In 2020, in 2021, Earl Mac Rauch wrote a book called Buckaroo Banzai Against the World Crime League. Okay. Well, I might have to, <laughs> I might have to buy that. Then. I think it's actually a graphic novel. People even will, better. Yeah. Oh, even better for me. People will be a reader. People will correct me if I'm wrong. And when we talk about the cast and all the people in there, they're all pretty well-known people. This was Richter's oh, first yeah. movie he directed, but he's mostly known as a writer. It's weird that the two movies he's directed, he didn't write, but he <laughs> he did that. But the cinematographers, okay? So they brought in originally, and then these were big-time people. They brought in a guy named Jordan Cronenworth to be the cinematographer. I think I read about this, the dude who worked on Blade Runner. Yes, he was a cinematographer yeah, for thought. Blade Runner. Yeah. And about halfway through, Richter is like, yeah, it's looking too Blade Runner-ish. So they brought in this other guy, Fred Conenkamp, who he had done like Patton, The Towering Inferno. He'd done some pretty big movies, too. So they had a lot of muscle behind this. The problem is they didn't try to advertise it at all. If you a lot of times I played the, the promo for the movie, the trailer, you go see the trailer for this movie and there's almost no speaking in it. You don't really know what the hell it's about. It really focuses on Peter Weller, who Lithgow was probably a bigger star at the time, honestly. Peter um, Weller is playing the title role, though. Yeah, he is. And then they would try to push it at like Star Trek conventions and they would tell. It's not a Star Trek. No, movie. no. But they would tell people like, oh, this is going to be a big cult hit. And what you don't tell a bunch of dorks and geeks is that I'm giving you a cult hit. They decide what's a cult it, hit. And like, this is in no judging or saying anything bad. This movie is too cool for Trekkies. Yes. And that's not a bad thing. Like, no. these are, you know, hip, cool band members and surgeons and they dress cool. And like, yeah, it's just, it's not Star Trek. No, it absolutely is not Star Trek. Again, and it didn't show in a lot of theaters. I think I read it was in just over 250 theaters. It was uh, tough for, I was speaking to Roger Ebert, and he still has RogerEbert.com, a website where, you know, our favorite guy, Ignati Vishnevesky <laughs> or whatever, used to work. If you know, you know. But, um, yep. But, socialism, his favorite movie. Yep. When, uh, <laughs> when they did the Blu-ray release of this, somebody wrote a review of it, and the guy's about my age. He was born in 1976, and he talks about how important this movie was for people like my age, where... We had our Star Wars. You had Star Trek if it was there. But most of the science fiction being made was really high-level stuff like Alien or Blade Runner or stuff that's just going to be way beyond my head. This was more of a little fun movie that still made you feel smart watching it. Again, one of my notes was silliness at its core. Silliness Mm -hmm. galore is what I wrote on there. Like, it's a silly movie. It deals with science fiction stuff and there's scary parts to it and where they try and send a message but it's i would have put science fiction comedy down is what yeah. i would have said if i were were amazon but it's still hard to pinpoint what this movie's about no and when it came out it actually if there was a rotten tomato score for when it came out it would have been like around 66 percent is what i looked up so just nearly fresh yeah just, just over the line of fresh and some of the super famous um critics of the time the New York Times, there's a guy named Vincent Camby. And then the New Yorker is this famous woman named Pauline Kale. And Pauline Kale, mm-hmm. like, she was out there to to destroy movies. I mean, to she, wreck them. yeah, she I've was. read about her yeah. before. Both Vincent Camby and Pauline Kale liked this movie. Okay. It's as a matter of fact, Pauline Kale wrote in the New Yorker, I didn't find it hard to accept the uninfected deadpan tone and to enjoy Buckaroo Banzai for its inventiveness and gags that bounce off other adventure movies, other comedies. The picture's sense of fun carried me along. So that's why I think for people like me or people my generation that watch this, this movie always had something. It always was in the background. It's always a movie we remember really, really liking. When I watched it yesterday, my thought was, oh, I see why my brother wanted me to watch this because I too like weird, you know, silly, goofy movies, but also it has that sensibility from when you were a kid back then, something that you would have enjoyed watching. Yeah. Some of you, and this is hilarious mm-hmm. type thing. And that's what I said. I haven't seen it in a while. I watched it again last night and I'm like, I still like this movie. It's I it's, loved every minute yeah. of it. Like I was never bored. I enjoyed what I was seeing. I liked seeing all these actors young. When you buy into the fact that, okay, this is made in 84, so it's going to look not like what we see today, it's really easy to just sit back and enjoy how goofy this movie Mm -hmm. is. And I've even, I've 
God, it was a couple of months ago. I was in the conversation, like uh, just texting back and forth with my friend Chris, who introduced me to this movie. And I just out of the blue said, you know, I really would like to see Buckaroo Banzai versus World Crime League. And we just got <laughs> into this conversation to the point sure. of I went to a comic shop because at the time the movie came out, Marvel used to release like comics for movies. And they yeah. had a two issue set of Buckaroo Banzai, the movie adaptation in the comics, for five bucks for the two of them. I have it sitting right on my nice. my little comic thing now. And they, that was a big deal with John Parker. He had the comic book yes. that hadn't been released yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that was a big deal in the movie there. The movie obviously still had a little cachet. In 1998, Fox said they went out uh, in their upfronts where they're talking about new shows that they're developing a Buckaroo Banzai TV series called Buckaroo Banzai Ancient Secrets and New Mysteries. Never mm. heard anything about it since then. In May of 2016, Kevin Smith announced that he'd made a deal with MGM and Amazon Studios to start producing a Buckaroo Bonsai th- series. Haven't heard anything Nothing. about that okay. since. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, Mac Rauch still obviously has lots of stories to tell about it. He and Richter are still around. They talk about it. You go, you see interviews with John Lithgow, Ellen Barkin, Peter Weller. They all talk about how much they love this movie. Yeah, you can tell that they were having like watching it. You can, I think you can tell that with movies. Like if the people are having fun, or if they're there for a paycheck, or if they're there to win awards, these people seem like they were really having a good time. I guess I'm trying to find the right words to say with it, but you know, when we talk about cult movies, and the next movie you and I are going to talk about, The Room definitely <laughs> sits in that cult status. But you get this, oh, yeah. you get this concept of the. I've done the Apple, and I've done Grease too with uh, Tina, and. Both of those movies are as culty as possible. Here's the thing about mm-hmm. it, and Tina would hate me to say this. Neither of those movies are good. And from my understanding, The Room's not very good. It's not. Again, I wouldn't say that Buckaroo Banzai is good. It's fun. Yeah. But I think of those quote-unquote cult movies, I think it's actually a better-made film. Oh, yeah. it's... This movie... Now, I haven't seen Grease 2 or um, the app. Buckaroo Banzai is a far superior movie to the the room just has so much around it, like the aura around that movie that makes it fun. I mean, I was telling somebody if this movie came out today. Huge hit. Yes, it would be. It would be massive. It's a, a movie yeah. that I'm going to find somebody to talk to about as a David Lynch Dune, which, again, I don't dislike. I actually like that mm-hmm. movie. Any movie that's I got, find it very boring. That, well, the movie starts out with giant vagina space monsters and. It, yeah, it's, it's still a boring movie. Though. No, it, it it is. And the new Dune and the one we're going to have to wait for now are yeah, unfortunately they're great. They take this really weird material. They make it great. But I think the audience is more ready for that stuff now. Absolutely. Absolutely and, agree with that. So that's why I thought if somebody went back and they decided to just make this movie or take some of a Mac Rauk scripts and produce something. I do. I think it'd be a big hit. That's my view of it. I full. I think this movie is right for somebody to remake it with all the remakes we do, but we have fun with it. People attached to it fun or I, I don't know, Taika Waititi, somebody like that mm-hmm. to do it. You oh, could, he'd be great. Yeah. You could really make some, yeah, you could really make something really cool with, with this. It be it a series, be it a movie, be it something. All right. Well, before we leave, Ty, the most important thing that I learned from this movie can be summed up with this. No matter where you go, there you go. (laughs) Wiser words have never been spoken. (laughs) So, Ty, people are going to be looking for you to to see if you're a red or a black electroid. Where are they going to find you? Oh, find me on Facebook and Instagram, Ty Kulik, T-Y-K-U-L-I-K, all lowercase. Come read my stuff on Seedsing, S-E-E-D-S-I-N-G.com. Listen to me on the X-Millennial Man podcast. And at, I'll end this like I end those, uh, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, this will be coming out on the 15th, which uh, is a Friday. The X-Millennial Man usually comes out on Saturday. I'm actually going to post this to both feeds because I just didn't put anything together for the other podcast. So this will <laughs> go out on both feeds. And like I said, look for it the 30th, The Room. I am actually got it scheduled to watch it next week. And I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> who are going to be. And the uh, while while Buckaroo might have the, the best philosophy of the movie, he doesn't have the best line. This is the best line. Not for lying, you can, the monkey boy. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's the absolute best way to go out. So uh, sounds good. <laughs> with, with that tie, I just got to finish it off and say thank you again for yeah. thank down. you for introducing me to this movie. Uh, yep. And uh, as we go walking towards the the barren rivers of L.A. with sick beats in the background, I thank you guys for listening. Remember, look for First Watch Rewatch uh, anywhere you find podcasts. You can find it under Public Forum Productions or First Watch Rewatch. I know a few people complained to me not having it on Google, but I figured that out. So All right. no matter where you go, there you are, Ty. <laughs> Stay fresh, cheese bag. <laughs>